everyone, and welcome to episode number 233 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello. And Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, Jonathan, why, why don't you describe what we're going to talk about this week? Okay, great. There's this Seinfeld clip, or Seinfeld episode, there's a clip on YouTube called The Indecisive Carpenter, which you can Google for. And to be honest, I haven't seen the whole show, but the segment is about a minute long, and it's Jerry has hired a carpenter to come in and redo his kitchen. And it starts off with Jerry sitting at his table. He looks like he's trying to do his bills, and the carpenter keeps interrupting him. And he's like, uh, Jerry, uh, listen, do you want uh, this hinge or that hinge? And Jerry's like, it doesn't matter, either hinge. And he's like, well, they're not the same thing. I mean, this hinge is like this, and this hinge is like that. And you really... Jerry's like, I don't care. Just pick either one. And he's like, the guy looks down at his hands and Jerry says, left. And so the guy's like, okay, great. I'll use the left hinge. Then it cuts to another scene where Jerry's trying to leave. He's trying to go out with friends. And the carpenter's like, "Uh, Jerry, Jerry, uh, before you leave, listen, I just want to ask you a couple of questions about height. And Jerry interrupts him and he says, just finish it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's this hilarious sort of logical extreme of what I see so many developers doing with their clients. Designers too, designers are, are, are famous for this, where they are inviting the client into the sausage factory way too much. And I used the clip to illustrate that sort of moral where I was like, you be the expert you do. Don't ask your customer's opinion, your client's opinion about which hinge to use. They don't know. You have to educate them about the differences between the two hinges and now you're wasting their time and you're wasting your time because ultimately they're going to do what you recommend anyway. So just do it. And I found myself as as I sort of drilled into this topic a little bit more because I sent it out to my list and I had a lot of, I really touched a, a nerve. A lot of people almost angrily emailing back like, so my clients shouldn't be involved at all in the decision making process and, you know, things like that. Because people are doing this and they can't imagine what else they would do, what they would do instead. So they're like, well, what else would I say if I didn't ask them which hinge to use or which font to use or what color to use or how big to make the logo or where to put the button or how big to make the button or if they like this or if they like that. And most people listening probably do this quite a bit and think that that is what we're talking about when we often advocate having a lot of client communication. But I think that's a mistake because really what you're doing is you're asking your client for an uneducated opinion that you are far more qualified to provide. And if you just do the thing, you know, you, you pick the hinge, you pick the logo size, so on and so forth, and just do it. Like if you get to a point in your development and your design, you're like, Hmm, I wonder if I should do this or this, just do one. And then if you really want to in your design review, I wouldn't even bring it up, but in your design review, you can just present it if they say, you know, why'd you go with that hinge or why'd you go with that color? Or why'd you go with that font? Don't ask them in advance. Just present what you think is the best thing. And if they bring it up, then maybe you can have a discussion about it. Maybe they're educated on it. But I, I would even go farther and say you shouldn't do that. But let's baby step here. So the idea for today's show was kind of sort of start there and have a conversation around what sort of input should you be getting from your customers when you do a design review or have a weekly stand up and what shouldn't you be asking? And of course, how does that translate into your 
career, your fees, making your business better, growing, that sort of thing. So client communication is always, I, I don't even want to say it's important. It's like crucial. You want to be talking to them all the time. But it sounds like what you're talking about is there's certain things that you should be communicating and certain things you should not be communicating. You should not be asking for, I like the way you described it as like uneducated advice or uneducated opinions, mm. right? You are the expert. And yet, like, I, I feel like in many cases, my clients, look, if it's on the software side, right? Like, so, you know, cause I, I'm a developer and so forth. So they come to me and say, you know, I've heard this no SQL thing is really great. You should be using MongoDB for everything. But then, <laughs> That's a like, great example. right? Oh my God. Like I definitely have, sort of opinions and arguments against that, you know, strong arguments against that. But like, that's the sort of thing where I feel like they should have no opinion. I'm not just, just not going to ask them. And I don't think anyone has ever sort of challenged me on that sort of thing. That said, there are plenty of places, especially when it comes to design, the stuff that they can see, that they mm -hmm. have strong opinions and they will express them and they will want the website to work in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Right. It's pretty rare for a client. A client has literally never come to me and said, you know, the way you organize the Git repo seems a little strange to me. <laughs> right. You know, that, it doesn't happen. Or if you're building an API, it doesn't happen. So designer uh, developers, I think, are insulated from a lot of this because a lot of their work is below the waterline. And once you get above the waterline, where most designers operate, and some front-end developers, front-end developers definitely inhabit this space, you get opinions. And, you know, we, we've talked about this on many shows. But you need to, in the, before the project even starts, you need to set goals for the project. You need to agree with the customer or the client what the goals are. And these will be business goals. These are not, not goals like finish this feature list, create, you know, implement this list of features. That's not a goal. It's not a business goal. You want to get business goals from the customer or the client. And once the project starts and somebody says, you know, I've been hearing a lot about MongoDB or could you make the logo bigger? You know, you say, why? You make them make a case. Like you don't bring it up. Do not bring it up. Do not say, hey, so what do you guys think about the nav? What do you guys think about the size of the logo? Do not bring it up. If they on their own bring it up, you ask them why they brought it up. And if you are really the expert and they really aren't, which is usually the case, you know, they're the expert on their business, but they're not the expert on what you do. So if they do bring it up and you are the expert, they won't be able to make a case. So you can say, I don't see how this achieves the project goals. You don't have any kind of argument how this achieves the project's goals. So let's put this on the back burner and focus on the stuff that we do, that we know achieves the project's goals. And if we have time and money left over later, resources left over later, we can either A-B test these things or put them in or we can put them off for a phase two. This is the key, I think, to managing scope creep is to have business goals defined and not ask them for their opinion on stuff that you are the expert on. They're paying you to do it. That's why, that's why I, I thought the Seinfeld episode was so funny because Jerry was so annoyed that the customer was asking for his input because it, you know, he was asking Jerry to make decisions that Jerry was not qualified to make. And I think freelancers do that as almost a defense mechanism. So it's like, well, you told me, you told me to use this hinge. Well, the door's falling off. Well, you're the one that picked it. <laughs> if yeah. you're billing by the hour, you can get away with that. Yeah, I, I can sort of see both sides of this. I, I'm going to throw out a situation that occurred to me earlier on in my freelance career. 
and I really would love you guys input on it. So, you know, I kind of build myself as a technical writer when I started out. That was, you know, that was my market position. That's how I described what I did. As a result, the kind of uh, gigs that I would get, I would kind of feel like the backup plan. And here's what I mean by that. With writing is a little bit unique this way. I think it's diff certainly different than software development. Although th this shows up also in, in bigger companies. You as a freelancer feel like the backup plan because you're doing something that the client could do in-house and probably would if they had the bandwidth for it. So like I would get hired to write a white paper, for example. And maybe, maybe this was kind of me projecting my insecurity onto the situation, but I often had the feeling that the client would do it in-house if they had the time, you know, if they had the capacity, if they weren't under the gun for a big product launch or, you know, whatever the specific situation was, they would just have one of their in-house subject matter experts do it, hand it off to the marketing department to be polished, and I would never have gotten hired for that. So for me, that kind of created this, again, insecure feeling of like, oh gosh, I really need to do it to their specs. Like they've designed the blueprint and I'm just, you know, the carpenter in here who's just executing on it or the assembly line worker who needs to follow the spec. And that really led me to feel like I needed to get a ton of client input all the time throughout the project. Yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, what you're describing in the developer world is staff augmentation. Right. And it's a fine way to pay the bills and keep the lights on, but it's no way to build a business. If you're going to do that to just get cash flow, I mean, you might as well be an employee at that point. It's like, there's just like the economics are just slightly different so that they don't see the need. They don't want you long-term. It's, I mean, you're basically behaving as an employee where you need to get the approval of your manager at all times. So it's, it's understandable that people who are in that situation would be confused by what, you know, I'm saying with the, the carpenter example. Once you have that sort of baseline of financial security and you are looking to grow your income, profits and your revenue, you want to start saying things like, you know, client comes to you and says, Hey, we want you to write this white paper. You want to say, why? What's the goal of the white paper? And they'll say, they'll probably say, shut up, hang up, see you later. We'll just get someone to do it for us. Right. But a good prospect for you or someone in that situation would be like, well, you know, the reason we wanted to do the white paper is we're trying to attract leads to the website. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, how many, how many leads are you looking to attract? Why are you looking to do it? Da, 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 da. And at the end of the conversation, you have done a diagnosis of their malady. So they have some either opportunity they want to capture, some problem they're trying to solve. And I mean, if you just say, okay, I'll write the white paper for you without finding out what the malady is or what the opportunity is, doing the, the white paper might change nothing meaningful for them. So if you want to move into that realm that's farther from freelancer and closer to consultant or advisor, then you want to start asking those questions. And I don't, I mean, you can call it pushback, I guess. I don't think it's really pushback. You're just asking questions like maybe that maybe a white paper is the best approach. Maybe it's not, but I just want to make sure before I write this thing for you, that your money that you spend with me is going to be a good investment for you because then that will have a longer relationship. It's good for both of us. And they might say, well, you know, we really just want to get more leads. I mean, if you have some other way to do that, we're all ears. That's a good client. It's like a good possible, possibly a good client. You say, oh, okay. You know, I've got some other ideas about this. I've been doing it for five years. 
you know, maybe you could just spend a few bucks on Facebook ads and be done with it or whatever. And come at it from a more consultative approach. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I'm, I'm trying to imagine what the folks at home are thinking. Like you're not likely as a newish freelancer or you're new to this approach. They're not going to say, oh, let us set up a meeting with the CEO for you. And the CEO will answer those questions for you. <laughs> they, they may just, you know, they may just say, well, this is what we always do in a product launch. We always write six white papers to support the product launch. Or, of course, we want to sell more product. But even getting that kind of answer, even if it's not, you know, the right answer or the best answer for those kind of why questions, mm -hmm. it's incremental progress in your movement out of being a hired pair of hands and towards being access to your brain, which is where, as we all know, that's where the, where the real money is. Right. Mm. And, and figuring out getting better and better at working your way up to the true decision maker. Right. Because you're right. right. It, is right. Highly, it is. If you're just starting out, it's highly likely that the person who's attempting to hire you or, or hiring you to write the white paper, they don't know the answers to these questions. Someone just told them to do it and they just right. want to tell you to do it so that they can get it off of their to-do list. So in their weekly meeting, they can say, yeah, I've got someone writing the white paper. They don't know why. That is not a good relationship. It's really, it's not, well, good. That's too vague. It's not a very profitable relationship for either party. So to push for greater wealth creation for all involved, you can ask questions to a person like this who, if they're having a good day, will indulge you and say, you know, that's a good question, but I really don't know the answer. And in a good situation, you could say, well, who does know the answer? I don't really want to take this on not knowing if I'm going to really help the overall business. And you can try, it's difficult, but you can try to work yourself up the internal chain of command, so to speak, to get those questions answered. Alan Weiss has a pretty specific advice on this where he, you know, he's got a sort of two-stage approach to it. One where he, he just sort of says like what I just said, you know, well, if you can't answer these questions, who can? And then if the person wants to act like a gatekeeper and, and sort of prevent you from talking to their superiors, then you can say something like, well, if this project goes horribly wrong, you kind of threaten them. If this project goes horribly wrong, it's not going to be my fault. It's going to be your fault. And Ouch. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think either one of us wants that. So I think it's in your best interest to let me talk to your boss. And, you know, he's operating, he's not writing white papers. He's operating at a different level, of course. But I think it's, it doesn't, I don't think it matters what, what level you're at. As long as you have this understanding, this sort of worldview, this mindset in the back of your head, and you're always, you know, you don't think of yourself as someone who writes white papers. Think of yourself as someone who solves a particular problem and you happen to do it by writing white papers. And focus on the problem that you're solving for the business and come up with other ways that you can solve it that are farther up the value chain. It takes time to do it, of course, but you want to get to a point, I'm totally putting words in the mouth of thousands of listeners, but presumably you're listening to this because you want to make your business more profitable. And the way to do that is to go farther up the value chain. And the way to do that is to ask why people want you to do certain tasks. And if you do that, you will probably lose out on some work. But eventually, you'll start getting better, better work from better and better clients. So like before, create this baseline of income where you're churning out white papers and you're asking which hinge to use, but all the while trying to attract better clients while you sort of have these kind of keep the lights on gigs going. Try to attract better clients farther up the food chain to 
grow your business and eventually you can stop doing the grunt work stuff and do more advisory type of engagements. I was thinking that this, it's a major mind shift. And, and I think it's, it's only recently that I've understood it completely. The difference between being a consultant and an employee is not just, you know, you're, you're paid differently. And it's not just, you know, that you have a different legal relationship. It's that you're being called in as an expert in a very specific thing. And so, you know, it's normal for me to go to my accountant, say, and ask questions about, well, you know, how should I spend money, save money, and so forth. And I'm going to ask him those questions. And we'll have a dialogue about it, right? But I'm not going to sort of say, well, how about this tax form? And how about that tax form? And how about this investment? Right? First of all, the day that I do that is going to be a crazy day, right? Like, Oh, you know what it's like? You know what it's like? It's like those people who go to their doctor and the doctor says, well, I think you have such and such. Or it's like, oh, but I read on the internet, right? And I see like the, the difference is that with a real consultant, you know, with, a, with someone who's really bringing authority there, they're coming to you for that sort of advice, which is wildly different mindset wise than what you have as an employee. And so as an employee, yes, you always have to sort of be checking in with your boss and making sure it's the right thing because it's the boss's name who's going on it. It's the boss who is responsible for it because like, you're, sort of, you're working for them and, and they're, you're doing the work, but their name is on it. Mm-hmm. And here, it's your expertise, it's your ideas, and your name is on it. And if it doesn't work out well, then, then you're out, not them. Right. And so you're still going to have those conversations. I mean, Jonathan, I think you said in your podcast at some point, might even with, I'm forgetting his name, the guy's been doing value-based pressing for a long time. I just heard the interview you did with him, which was great. Ron Baker. Ron Baker. So like, I think you gave the example of like, when you go to your doctor, you're not going to tell them how to do the open heart surgery. <laughs> and, and like that really clicked for me. And yet so often it's so easy to get sucked into that kind of conversation, right? Because you, you want to still please the client and you want to make them feel like you care about their opinion because you do. And so it does seem like a fine line to some degree in many cases. I love the accountant example because I imagine that most people are not into they don't have this burning desire since they were a little kid to like be all up in their own finance even their own finance <laughs> so it's one of those things that's highly personal it's very emotional your money and and what it can do for you and like what it enables you to do or not do or lack lack of it, it prevents you from doing and i just my relationship with my accountant is is just like you describe, I say, I describe my situation. I've got this many kids. They're this old. My wife, blah, blah, blah. This many cars, office, yada, yada, yada. What should I do? That's the client relationship that you want to foster as a freelancer moving into consulting realm. You want to find clients who are going to look at you and say, here's my situation. What should I do? Not looking to you and be like, the client looks at you and says, do these 15 things. That is a, a thing that will pay the bills for you because you know how to do those 15 things. You know how to create a React Native app. You know how to slice a Photoshop document, so on and so forth. But recognize that those things are never going to get you anywhere. You need to move away from those things if you want to, if you want to increase your income. You love those things. They're your craft. You labored over them. You had a sense of mastery over those things. They're not going to get you to the higher levels of income do that those things you need to transform that mastery into advice so your understanding of how photoshop works or what's possible with react 
or even in a web browser in general, that expertise can translate into advice where people are like, look, we have this really high risk situation. Our competitors are destroying us. We know we have to undertake this massive redesign. If we screw it up, my head's going to roll and probably the business is going to go under. We need somebody who we can look at and say, here's our situation. What should we do? And you tell them and they do it. And that's the thing, like learning PHP or React or Photoshop or Illustrator leads to that. That's what I did. I started out with PHP and worked my way up to, you know, don't do that, do this. And somebody else codes it. And I, I tell that to a lot of people and they freak out because they're absolutely in love with their craft and, and type in the semicolons and keyboard shortcuts for Photoshop and so on and so forth. But eventually, if you don't leave that behind, you're going to hit an income ceiling very quickly. And it's going to be around $140,000. And that's it that you'll ever make for the rest of your life per year. So if you want to go through that $140,000 ceiling, you have to sort of go up a level and use the expertise that has accumulated from while, while you were doing those sort of implementation things. So what, what about when the client is really convinced? Like, what about when the client wants to be involved more? So I, I have a client, and I've, and I've worked for, uh, no, I, no, let me just give an example. Like, I have a client, and I've, worked, I've worked for them for years, and I really love them. Like, they're great people, interesting and everything. Okay. And, they're in a, and they're in a market where, you can say Airbnb is sort of a, 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 in the similar market, not exactly, but similar. Yeah. And so whenever we'd bring a designer, I'm not the designer at all, so this didn't affect me directly. One of the founders would be like, well, this doesn't look like Airbnb. <laughs> and he'd be like, they have so much more money and they have so much more market space. They have spent time researching it. It's clear that whatever Airbnb is doing is the right thing to do. We should just make it look like them. So they have bigger photos. We should have bigger photos. They have more descriptive, like, like down the line. And so it yeah, comes they, very often like that. I, I, uh, oftentimes I get that in sort of Facebook area where somebody, a client will say, well, Facebook's done all this user research. We should just copy whatever decision they made about a hamburger menu or how to do a navigation or whatever. And my answer to that is always, you're not Facebook. You're not even close to Facebook. Now these guys, maybe they are close to Airbnb or they're trying to be, but I would ask without presuming to know the answer, I would ask, is copying Airbnb's design really the fastest way to the goals that we're trying to achieve here? Like what, first of all, what are the goals we're trying to achieve? Airbnb clone is not a goal. They <laughs> must have specific business goals. Well, hopefully they have specific business goals. And it's highly unlikely that copying Airbnb's design is going to automatically work to get them to those goals. Like you can see why someone would think that. It's like, make it look like Airbnb. It's like, well, what if we make it look like Craigslist? You know, like what's our competitive differentiator? Maybe well, the, I mean, the argument was a little more serious than the argument was not just like aesthetics. The argument was they've done, you know, a B testing and, fa and they've published on their blog that doing X instead of Y is more effective. Thus, let's just take, you know, take research and go with it. Yeah. It's like somebody else did your work for free. So, you know, like I said, I wouldn't presume to know what the correct answer is, but I would run any design decision, regardless of or, or any decision or anything that they're sort of any place where it feels like the customer is trying to do your job for you or micromanage you or something like that. I always say the same thing. I say, what's the business case? Mm -hmm. Somebody says, oh, we need to do integration with uh, segment.io. What's the business case? 
well, we're trying to have a single place for all the leads to be collected. Like, well, why don't we just send them all into Drip? We're already integrated with Drip. Oh, we can do that? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, just do that. Mm -hmm. So I think you're doing your customers and yourself a disservice if you skip over the diagnostic phase of any request. So if they make some kind of specific request, use that hinge. All right, we can totally use that hinge. Why do you want to use that hinge? Like, why do you even care which hinge we use? I thought you just cared that your kitchen was uh, better for entertaining large parties. Yeah, but I read this thing on Kaufman that said that uh, that hinge is blah, 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 blah. And then you might say, eh, whatever, you know, no skin off my nose. I can use whatever hinge he wants. It doesn't really matter. Or you could say, you know, this hinge actually is five times more expensive than the other hinges. And you've got 45 of them in this kitchen, which means that we can't afford the beverage fridge if you want to stick to the budget. So it's kind of a priority thing. Resource-wise, would you rather have these hinges or the beverage fridge or would you want to increase the budget? So you kind of keep them honest. I feel like when I'm in a project, I try and there's, there's me, there's the client and there's the project projects like this other entity that both of us need to protect. And in fact, usually it's me protecting it. And at the end, the, the idea is that I want the project to be a gigantic success because that's how the customer is going to gauge their satisfaction with me. So I need to know what upfront, what success looks like. And then like by hook and by crook and tooth and nail throughout the project, I do everything I can, in my opinion, that's going to keep the, the project on course. If they ask me for something that's just like, that I think has no effect one way or the other, I'll just do it. But if I think that it is going to have a, a major impact one way or the other, I'm going to raise that issue and say, look, you know, this is a trade-off. So somebody says, oh, we want a, a classic one with web design. Developers are always in the middle of a project saying, uh, throw in more analytics, throw in more tracking, throw in more <laughs> ad networks. And before you know it, you have 65 JavaScript includes, 65 network requests, which pull down God knows how many other network requests and they're all slow and none of them are mobile friendly. And, you know, and so at the beginning of a project, knowing that that's usually a problem, I'll say, what's the goal of this project? And a lot of times they say, we want the site to be really snappy on mobile. We want it to be finger friendly, to be mobile friendly, and we want it to be super fast. Okay. Good to know. And then six months later, when they're like, yeah, throw in Overture and AdWords and double click and drip and Facebook. Pixel and say, all right, well, we decided that we were going to have a maximum two second load time cold cache hit on these pages. Is this worth throwing that constraint out or should we pick and choose a little bit? Because just keep adding these things and expect that they have no impact on the performance, the page load time. No. I love how you call it diagnosis. I, I love it because it really, it, it gets me at least into the mindset of like, again, a doctor, right? Where Let's not, you know, what's the case here? What's the diagnosis? Let's, let's figure out what's going on and what's necessary. And always, always asking them, you know, what's the business case for this? I, I, I feel like you can't go wrong asking that question. It's malpractice if you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I often wish that this sort of software consulting profession had a sort of AMA type of body that you could be kicked out of. It was <laughs> You know, I'm sitting here scratching my chin thinking about this transition from sort of that staff augmentation mindset, which is really, that's a great way to describe how I thought about working with clients when I started out to this more advice giving consultative mindset. I mean, I, it's not easy. It really, if you don't feel some feeling of confidence in your own judgment, 
it's really hard to make that transition. Do you, do you guys have any, I mean, have you seen yourself go through that? You don't count Jonathan because you, you apparently are confident about everything you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm often you, wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is kind of, kind of nice. What about you, Ruben? I mean, I know that I went through that transition, but I honestly think it was only sort of in the last few years that I felt, no, look, that's not entirely true. Like I definitely felt like for a number of years, people would turn to me and say, well, what do you think about X? And I think I would even feel like I was responsible for telling them what I thought about X, even if they weren't necessarily asking me, right? That was sort of my, my position I needed to add, tell them. But it was, a, it was not at all obvious when I started consulting that that was sort of necessary at all or part of the job or something that anyone would want, right? I think staff augmentation is definitely what I imagined consulting to be when I started at it. I mean, that was 100% what I thought it would be when I started at it. Not even a question. Yeah, right. I think a good approach for people who do kind of have that fear, or maybe it's maybe it's a little imposter syndrome, like who am I to say what they should do? A useful tactic is to target businesses that don't have your skill set in-house and don't want it. Like an accountant, I don't want to be good at that. I don't want to hire someone to do it internally. I completely want to outsource that. It's distasteful task in my opinion or to me so i'm a i'm probably a great customer for an accountant because i don't want to get in their business at all now imagine if you were an accountant and you were going to do the books for another accountant or for fancied themselves as an accountant oh god right because I, i i've certainly had projects with folks who fancy themselves as developers or that uh, bootstrap their way with a, a, you know, enough technical skills to be dangerous into a successful business and then realize that they're in over their head once they've got a revenue stream. And then when I come in, it makes financial sense for me to come in. They have a hard time letting go of the, you know, the fact that they, they know how they did it and they sort of had this fledgling thing that they patched together. And it's tough for them to switch that off. The better clients, you can do that. And the other ones, eventually, you probably just let them go because they, you know, they're constantly asking you questions and then they never take your advice. They're just second-guessing you and micromanaging you all the time or questioning every decision endlessly. It's uh, very tedious. The point I'm getting at is if you do a thing and you want to move away from staff log type things, you want to target businesses that don't have your capability in-house and don't want it. So if you are a, let's say you're a um, React developer, if you're going to go offer your technical services to like a Valley startup that has five other React developers on staff, they're not going like to, they, they're not impressed with your skills. They're not going to be impressed with your skills. They have five other guys that do what you do or five other girls that do what you do. They just need another pair of hands and that's how they're going to treat you. But if you're an amazing React developer, you could target, you know, like we always say, dentists, or you could target somebody who's never going to have a React developer on staff. Pick a target market that's never going to hire a full-time React developer and find problems that they have that you can solve with your skill set, and you will be an expert. The dumbest thing that comes out of your mouth about React is going to be 100 times better than anything that they'll ever think of. So it's the same with my accountant. My accountant could be an idiot. I have no idea. I, I wouldn't start questioning her judgment. You know, I just met her. I trust her. A friend recommended her. I just trust her. 
And that's, you know, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I know absolutely zero about accounting and I have always outsourced. It. So long way of saying expertise is relative. So if the thing that you're an expert at is in supply, those current customers are probably never going to really value you that highly. You probably want to find customers who don't have more of you in-house and who probably never will. And you'll feel much more confident because everything you say will be like, oh, that's a great idea. Go ahead and do it. It gets back to a question we got last week in the Q&A. You have to be willing to do something other than just your craft. <laughs> in other words, you have, you're building a business based on expertise and you have to be willing to do that businessy stuff like talk to clients. And you, you just, I think if you want to just do your craft 24 seven and be around other people who are also craftsmen, that's much more like being an employee than it is like being a, a consultant. Absolutely. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. Sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. The best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. You know, when you move out of that staff augmentation role, the stakes do go up. And one of the ways that I started getting more comfortable with that was to just simply, when I was having a meeting with clients, to as soon as possible, like in that sort of pre-meeting chit-chat time, to say, how's business going? So instead of, how was your weekend, which is fine, or whatever, right, uh, to say, how, how's business going? It, for me, it was just an easy, low-stakes way to start trying to get outside the scope of the project and, and hear from the client in their own words, how's business going? That, just that was one simple thing I can advise the folks at home. If you're in that position of like, oh my gosh, this sounds so risky. You're right, it is. <laughs> it's the <laughs> most risky thing you can do is be a pair of hands where somebody else makes the decisions. And, you know, Jonathan's salary cap uh, number is pretty consistent with what I would, would, would say as well. So yeah, it, it does involve risk to get away from being a pair of hands, but I think there's ways to do it gradually, not so it's not like an overnight transition, because that's really just kind of setting yourself up for failure, right? If you just expect to be able to ask the right two questions, then every, you know the world opens up to you, and all of a sudden you're getting triple the amount of money you used to. It doesn't really work that way, or at least it, it didn't for me. Maybe I'm just slow, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's like it's like totally. everything else, right? Like exactly, it takes time. You have to learn how to do it how to ask the right questions, how to, which people you want to talk to, who are the ones worth talking to, like all of this, all of this just takes like a long time to sort of get right. 
Yeah, it's a risk reward thing. If you are happy capping out at 140 or something and you're just comfortable, cool. That's cool. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad, but if you want to go past that, you're going to have to take some risks. And, and like, let's put this in the bigger scheme of things. Like, what are we talking about risk wise here? You know, you're not wrestling an alligator. <laughs> you know, you're, you, a lead comes in and you try and handle it in a way you've never handled it before. You know, in the way that, the way that we're describing, you do a diagnosis, you push back, you don't jump to offer the lowest price and maybe you don't get it the first time, but what did you really lose? And if that next gig is like, if you need to get it to pay your mortgage or your car payment or whatever, don't do it on that one. Wait till you've got a little bit of cushion. And when you're feeling comfortable, then that's the time to, to try a little, a little bit different way. Have a why conversation, push back, do the diagnosis. You'll be shocked what happens. I mean, you'll be setting yourself apart from virtually everybody else they're talking to because everyone else is going to be like, my hourly rate is this. Yes, 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 yes. I can do everything you want. I can start tomorrow. And the only way that they'll really have to compare them, a group of people like that, is like, who's got the lowest hourly rate? But if you're the one that says, well, I can do that for you, but what are you trying to achieve? Because I, I, it's hard for me to see where a company like you would benefit from this thing you're asking me to do. And they'll sit back. They'll look, well, um, okay. This is what we were thinking, you know, and it gets them engaged at a completely different level, but more of a partner level. And you'll screw it up the first few times. But, you know, what else you got to do? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I've done, I guess, like three road mapping projects for people now. And first of all, I found it laughable at the beginning that anyone would pay me to do this sort of estimate. Because really, I mean, it was certainly more thorough than the other estimates I'd done for clients in the past. But not that much more thorough. I mean, for crying out loud, it was like 10 pages instead of five pages or six pages. And they were paying me for crying out loud. And, and the thing is, I was very sort of nervous about asking. I had a sort of, maybe not the best kind, but a sort of why conversation, asking them, you know, as, as you like to describe it, Jonathan, you know, at least the why this and why now. I didn't really get to the why me because it was more of a roadmap. And I think they were fascinated that anyone was taking an interest in this, that anyone was talking to them about their organization and wanted to hear them justify what they were doing. Like, I don't think they'd ever stepped back and thought about it. And I, I think they were very pleased to be able to have the opportunity to do this thinking and filter things, things out. And this is important and that's not important. And that definitely sort of put me in their eyes as an expert. Indeed, just yesterday, I got email from one of the people from whom I'd done a roadmap where they decided not to uh, sort of go with me for the development, but to stick with their existing terrible development company. And they wrote to me and said, you know, we were so happy with the work that you did there. We'd like to bring you in and, and tell us how to construct a technical staff in-house so we don't have to go with it. So there, there we go. Like, basically, because of these questions I was asking... And because of the way I was communicating with them about what are their goals, it totally worked to my advantage in the long term. And look where you put yourself in their minds. They don't see your highest value as a developer anymore. Right. They see it right. as an advisor. Yeah, that's going to be the more profitable project anyway, right? Yeah, big time. <laughs> well, so here's, here's the thing. But let's, let's for, the, for the audience, let's make it super clear what we mean by profitable. Because it's not more revenue. It's more profit. So. A software project, an implementation can be three, six, nine, 12 months long. That's a lot of revenue. 
So your overall gross sales would be $100,000 for a six-month project easily. So that's high revenue, but it's usually very low profit because you're either paying employees or you've, got, you've outsourced some of the labor or you're just doing it yourself and all of your time, you have to subtract your time as a cost. It's not that profitable. It's stable, good income over time, but it's not that profitable. But if you do, I don't want to ask you how much you charge, Ruben, but if you write a 10-page report for somebody and they pay you four figures for it, that's far more profitable. It's only a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks, but you did it in three hours. And if you, and now you're positioned in these, this client's mind as someone who operates at a higher level, who can tell them what they should do. And so you can create a much more profitable in terms, of, you know, your price minus your cost, that's profit. You can create much more profitable offerings for these people. You need to do a lot of them because it's not like a six month thing. It's like a one week thing, but, but it means that you can work for four hours a week and make a good weekly income. If you get a lot of these over time, you'll start to get a lot of these. And then you're like, wow, I'm working 20 hours a week and $300,000 a year. That's the thing. I mean, because people talk, people, I mean, I guess they talk in all industries, but I feel like especially in high tech and maybe it's doubly, especially in Israel where like it's a very small country, everyone talks to each other. And so, you know, maybe it's not a coincidence actually that I was contacted by this organization. And on the same day, the woman with whom I was in touch, her husband who runs a company called me up and said, hey, I could use some software advice on things and maybe some development. Right. So like basically it's, it's amazing. It's a totally different image. You're right. Than being a, the software developer to whom they turned, even though the sort of way to get to where they wanted involves software clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this funny thing I, I find with people who picture themselves as developers that anything that's easy for them, they feel like has no value. <laughs> that's right. So, and that's exactly where all the value is. It's the thing they usually give away for free. It's the thing like, oh, they're like, somebody says to them, we're considering using PhoneGap versus native iOS. If somebody said that to me, I would ask them six questions and I'd tell them which one to do. And it, with 100% confidence. And it would be so easy for me. Air quotes, easy, because I've been studying it for 10 years. But, you know, it'd be so, air quotes, easy for me to, to answer that one question which could swing a million dollars one way or the other for that company. They could do a million dollar project using the wrong choice and end up finding out at the end that it was a huge mistake. And, it, you know, so how much should I charge them for that? It's a good question. It depends. But it's certainly highly valuable. And it's not something that you want to be giving away for free all the time. You know, it's but nothing to feel bad about charging a fair price for. Let, let, let me put that in even like, well, starker contrast. I'm sure you've heard that one before. In any event, Never. Never. <laughs> so like, so this road mapping that I did with these people who call me back now, easily, easily like a quarter of the time was me explaining to them that on a website, like web application, you need to have a database server and a web server and the browser and how they sort of work together. And I think most developers would be like, what? <laughs> you, like, you charge them money to explain how the web works? Are you kidding me? And yet, yes. And, and not only did I, but they loved it and they were appreciative of it and they're asking for more. Mm -hmm. And that is 100% the sort of thing that I would give away in the past because I'm like, well, clearly everyone should know this if they're going into a web project. 
Then after we get beyond that, we can talk real stuff. But for them, this is real stuff because it's all new. The fact that we do it every day doesn't make it less new to them. Just points out that value is completely contextually defined. Yes, yes. And this is what I was talking about before, where the garden variety web developer who's been doing this for three years, maybe has like a CS degree, has way more information about the basics of like the puzzle pieces involved with creating, say, an e-commerce store than a billion potential clients, at least millions. So if you target clients who already know all that stuff that you already know, then you're going to be perceived as not an expert. But if you target someone who knows nothing about that because they're an accountant and they don't care about any of that stuff other than what it can do for them, they don't care about the what's under the hood, then you will be like an expert. And if they click with you personality-wise and you guys have a good relationship and they trust you and you're a reasonably good communicator, they'll cling on to you like a life preserver and you will treat them with respect and trust and you will not make them feel like an idiot when you explain the difference between HTTP and HTTPS and they will love you for it and they will gladly pay you for it because they, you know, it's valuable to them. Anyway, don't ask people which hinge to use. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think about the nav? Like if that ever comes out of a freelancer show listener's mouth, send my shoe <laughs> for the internet to smack them in the head. Okay, but that, but I guess we should probably start wrapping up. But like, that seems like such a natural question for someone to ask, right? Like, you're showing off what you've done, right? You've created this magnificent design. You're showing it off to your client. And so instead of saying, what do you think? What should you be asking? Do you think this fairly captures the business goals or achieves the business goals we want? Is that what you should be saying? I mean, I, I've put, you're asking the wrong guy because I, I put out proposals where I'm like, you're not allowed any input on the design of your website. So you really said that your proposals. I've done, I did one proposal where I explicitly said it, where I was like, one of the options was basically I said, you, you can give me your input, but I have to retain veto power because a lot of design decisions that people tend to make, business owners tend to make are counter to the goals of this project. So you're going to ask for bigger, crisper images. You're going to ask for more images. You're going to ask for more tracking. And all of these things are going to decrease the stated goal, which is to increase sales on mobile. It was a sort of a rare project in the sense that we had a very clear bottom line metric. They're usually not that clear. And so in that case, I was like, I'm not taking this risk unless I give myself the power to veto design decisions because they will affect the stated outcome. I don't usually go that far, but this was such a clear outcome and I, was, I wasn't going to put myself out for that. So what should you do? You know, in design review, uh, I think the most important thing when I'm communicating with the customer, there's two things really that get communicated. One is that we're making good progress or we're not. Basically a progress update. We had some surprises with the offline support on mobile Safari. We're working on it. I think we have solution, but I'll keep you posted. That's taking longer than expected. Or we say everything's going great, progress is right on, right on track, here's the timeline, here's where we are, here's where the end is, we're making progress. And then the other thing I will do in those meetings is, is I'll say something like, we came to a fork in the road, I might not even tell them what the fork is, but say I came to a fork in the road and it led me to ask this question and then I'll ask them a business question. So I'll say something like, you know, there's a design decision that we're considering 
instead of me showing the two possibilities to them, I'll ask the question that is like, is it more important to target 18 to 25 year old males or females, or is it going to be both? And I won't even get into like the whole, like, well, if it's going to be females, it should be red. And if it's going to be males, it should be green. Like none of <laughs> I'll just be like, we came to a point where we didn't have enough information about your business and you are, usually it's about their customers. That's usually the question is like, what do your customers prefer? How savvy are your users? Should we do something really slick or should we really, really sort of dumb it down to lack of a better term? Should we really dumb it down and make everything just spelled out in the interface? You know, like how, how savvy are they? Give me an example of a typical user. Like they understand... The term double click. Do they know how to drag and drop? Sometimes you'll get people like, no, my customers don't understand. If I said drag and drop to my customers, they just stare at me. Really? Wow. wow. Yeah. So, you know, it, I had a question the other day that was like, I, I spent 15 minutes on a phone call the other day. I was giving, I was saying, okay, the beta site is up. You guys can test it. You know, you can imagine all the things I said, you know, give me all your email addresses. I'll create the accounts. You can go in and change your passwords. Here's how the interface works. Da, 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 da. I, tried to make it as straightforward and kind of non-technical as possible. And I got questions like, you know, I'm, I'm doing a screen share to a group of people and, and I got questions like, is that the URL that it's going to be at? And, <laughs> and questions like, what browser should we use for this? You know, it was like an internal admin, like a, like almost like a WordPress administrative interface. What browser should we use for this? Is this going to work on our PC? You know, like, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was like 16 people on the phone that were like, asking questions that were, and it's not like, I don't want it to come across. Like, I think they're idiots. Cause I don't, they're great at their thing, which has absolutely nothing to do with web development. Which makes them such great clients because they, they appreciate your expertise. They're not going to second guess you. And the questions are coming from ignorance, not stupidity. And in many ways, like I find those sorts of clients are often easiest to work with. I guess this is what you're saying. Easiest to work with appreciative and um, often offer insights that I never would have thought of myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can be like a superhero to them if you respect them. The problem is I think a lot of people start to disrespect them. And they're like, oh, these clients are so stupid or these, client, these clients are horrible or, or the client will ask for something that, you know, on the face of it is an idiotic request. And if, you, if you're the type of person to just take orders from your clients, then they, that can get really frustrating because then there'll be ramifications that the client later is like, oh, these ramifications are horrible. And like, well, you asked me to do it. If instead, you know, they ask you for something that's sort of idiotic on the surface and you say, why do you ask that? What's the business case for that? Why do you want that? Why did you bring that up? Why did that occur to you? And you can get at the root because they are totally over their heads, out of their depth. And you can usually, you can usually just explain the question away. You're like, oh, that, that won't matter because or just install Chrome. Can you guys install Chrome on your machines at work? You do it. You have it. Okay, great. You're all set. Just use Chrome. I seem to remember Patrick McKenzie telling the story about what he was doing in Bingo Card Creator, where he had some, and this was like an application for elementary school teachers, or maybe middle school teachers. And he got some teacher asking him, why does it work when I'm using the green Google, but not the blue Google? Yes. And he was like, what the heck? And like any technical person would, or most technical people would sneer at that and ignore them. Mm -hmm. But he began to understand that if I'm not mistaken, it was different browsers. And this person had no clue about different browsers, just that the browsers had like displayed things in different colors. 
mm-hmm. through that, he was able to debug it and, you know, want a customer for life, basically. Yeah. I mean, anybody listening to this show, you're probably, you're an expert compared to somebody. Find them, <laughs> find them, be their champion. They will gladly pay you for it. Anyway, we, I, I feel um, like I'm rambling like crazy on this show, so we should probably. No, this is good. This is good. Any last thoughts, Philip? Anything more to say before we go into picks? Yeah, it was a perfect note to end on. I mean, really, just at the most vague level, we're talking about. Really, we're talking about how to manage a project, but like it, it kind of boils down to where you can create the most value. Because if the value proposition is compelling, you'll get a lot less. You'll just inherently in the project get a lot less micromanagement. But but really, I, I found this to be true for myself. It really is how you behave. That that's where. If, at least for me, most of the problems came from my own behavior as a as a freelancer. So start there when when you're looking to improve things and and go slowly, you know, because it is a is a change that's not going to happen overnight. Excellent, Jonathan. You have any picks for us this week? I do. Let me see if I can find the actual name of it. But Mike Montero, this is especially for the designers in the room. Mike Montero does a fabulous keynote. I've seen to give it a few times that very much hammers on a lot of these same notes, but he's very much focused on designers. And I think designers are the ones that suffer from this sort of make the logo bigger problem more than most people and probably don't know how to, you know, like they might get the idea like, yeah, you're right. But what do I actually say? It can be tough when it comes right down to uh, the tactical situation. You know, when the rubber meets the road, what do I actually say? And if you want more of this, look for, well, go to the show notes and I'll have a link to it, but uh, there'll be a, a keynote video of Mike Montero. I think the keynote's called You've Been Lied To, and it's great. I, I agree with every word of it. And uh, he has a hilarious sort of cranky old man presentation style, which is great. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen that one, but I definitely saw, I think it was that one, plus uh, one or two others of his, and yeah, he's a great speaker. Mm, yeah, he's fun. Just sort of a random pick, moving toward the holiday season, and I have this thing that's been a trusty companion in my bag that I got from Everyday Carry called the Gerber Shard, and it's like this little black metal multi-tool that does like like a bottle opener and a screwdriver and a, you know it's kind of like a, a single metal a little tiny piece of metal that you can put on your keychain it has no moving parts and uh, i gotta tell you i use this thing all the time especially when i'm traveling because it's tsa approved and around you know in our house we'll have uh, at christmas we'll have a whole bunch of toys with batteries that have this little Phillips head screw on the battery compartment. And this thing, this little shard I'm going to have in my pocket, it has a Phillips head head (laughs) that I'm going to be using endlessly on Christmas day. So by the time this comes out, maybe it will be too late for Christmas, but, or whatever holiday you celebrate, but this is a great little tool to have on your keychain. I highly recommend it. Very cool. This is not made by Gerber, like the baby food company. This is a different Gerber. Gerber knife. I think oh, okay. knives. I, I don't know if it's the same company. <laughs> Baby food and knives. That's kind of a kind of a weird line extension. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, you got any uh, picks for us this week? Jonathan's pick is hilarious because I earlier in the show wrote down a note to do a pick for Mike Montero's book, Design is a Job. I go. bet it's uh, real similar content to that keynote you talked about. 
really, really good book. I was, I mean, when I read it the first time, I thought, yeah, this is not probably going to be for me. This is for designers, but it was recommended, whatever. Turns out it's a great book for anybody who provides expertise for clients or builds things for clients. So I just, I agree with a lot of what's in there. And it really is sort of talking about how to make that transition from pair of hands to advisor consultant and gives a lot of practical advice for how to do that. I got another book recommendation for my second pick, which is this book called Start With No by a guy named Jim Camp. I read it over the past uh, month or so, and that's another book where I was really expecting to just be like, yeah, I don't know. But it, it was recommended to me enough times that it got over the threshold of I'll read it anyway, even though it seems like it's not for me. And it's just amazing. It's an amazing book on uh, how to do negotiation. The part that resonated with me and actually kind of connects back to something Jonathan said, where each request the client gives you, you need to have a, a sort of separate micro discovery session for that request, um, which could just take 10 seconds where you say, okay, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to make the logo bigger? Or why do we need to, um, you know, add those fields to that form or whatever it is. That connects with this book because um, Jim Camp talks about how every little tiny aspect of a, of a longer relationship with a negotiating partner is its own little negotiation. And again, the thing that really resonated with me, he talks a lot about trying to uncover, I mean, he uses the word adversary to talk about who you're negotiating with, try to uncover their pain, the thing that you can help them solve and use the negotiation conversation as a way to find out what that is. It's just completely opposite all of the other advice I've ever seen on negotiation. And all of that other advice really seemed to me to be about power and getting what you want rather than helping somebody else get what they want at, it just so happens, a premium rate <laughs> for, for that. And, you know, Jim Camp's approach just made a lot more sense for me. The book's called Start With No, and that's my second pick for this week. Very neat. So I've got one pick for this week. I'm sure all listeners are familiar with the Dilbert cartoon and Scott Adams, the guy who draws it. So I just uh, read How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, kind of the story of my life, which is a book by Scott Adams. And I'd seen it recommended. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll take a look at it. I would say a good quarter of it I found to be just sort of silly and ridiculous, but a fair amount of it was actually quite interesting. I, I think in particular, he says in sort of more stark, sort of terms than we would normally use, set up systems, right? This is something that we talk about on the show quite a bit. And we hear from the people whom we interview that if you set up a system and make it consistent in your life, then you're more likely to do it and achieve something. And he talks a lot about how to do that in different areas of your life, not just in work. But I think it's also very encouraging for people who fail at things, which is basically everyone. And he goes out of his way to mention all the stupid things he's done, or many of them, and then how he was able to turn some of those bad things and turn them into good things. And of course, it's kind of funny too. So I definitely uh, recommend taking a look at that. And I guess that is our show for this week. Thank you, Philip and Jonathan. And thanks to you all out there in podcast land for listening. And we will talk to you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.